Hello, I'm Sandra Gilman, Chairman of the American Theatre Wing, with our Board President, Doug Leeds. Welcome to today's program. In dozens of shows in careers that span years and even decades, these performers play some of the most interesting roles in theatre, and they always seem to be working. They are the men and the women who are essential to any production, the featured actor and actress. Today we'll meet several of those talented performers who'll share their thoughts on the diverse roles they play. And we'll be back later to tell you more about the work of the American Theatre Wing. But right now, please join us for another edition of Working in the Theatre. You've seen these hard-working troopers in numerous productions, both on and off-Broadway, in addition to television and film. Our guests today are the featured actors and actresses who never seem to stop working. Hello, I'm Pia Lindstrom for the American Theatre Wing, and joining us to talk about their diverse roles on stage are Helen Carey, Elizabeth Franz, Jane Howdyshell, and Jelko Ivanik. Welcome. Thank you. Well, did you all dream of being character actors, or did that just happen with time, <laughs> Jane? <laughs> no, you know, I, I think I knew from uh, very early on, the first role I played at the age of 14 was a Jewish mother. So I think that was an indication of, you know, <laughs> the path I was, <laughs> I was on. So you didn't dream of being the ingenue? Never. Or, the, or did you think, well, you were started very young, so started you started young, at the, as a young boy. Did you think that you would become I don't think I had any sense of, of the categories even you know whatever I was interested in it was not about the kinds of role it was about being part of something and and what it what it felt like to, to share in doing theater I, I don't think I had a very strong sense that there were any kind of categories to fit into or not fit into uh, d d well I was told in uh, drama school that I probably wouldn't work until I was Millie Dunnock's age <laughs> And, I and that was and at that seventy. I was nineteen twenty, and, and I didn't know who she was. Oh. And of course, then I, I, I got to work with her and all. But uh, but that's but and I said, well, do you do you mind if I try? And they said, no, 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 you can try, but you probably won't have any success until you are much older. Yeah. But then, of course, regional theatre came along, and you could play older. You couldn't do yeah. that in New York. But now I have the problem of, you know, I've been playing this age that I'm playing now for so long that they think either I'm dead or I'm 98 years old. And, uh, and that's, that I... So you were never an ingenue? Never an ingenue, no. Thank you. It's the time of your autobiography. You, you were an ingenue? I was, but I, <coughs> excuse me, I didn't think I was going into theater. I studied ballet for years when mm. I was from the time I was very little, right through, uh, right through university, actually. And um, it came a point where I think everybody who studies it seriously realizes what a life in dance means. And you either are accepting of that or not. And I, I thought, mm, no, this isn't for me. And so I just stopped. And to fill the void, I walked into the theater department. Mm. And, um, and that's how it came to be. Was there anything about the dance training that did carry over very specifically? Oh, absolutely. What part of I it? think your awareness of the space that you take up and mm. the type of 
space available to you as a given character mm -hmm. um, is is an awareness that you carry with you if you've done a lot of body work. So mm -hmm. I, I, th I think it does. Yeah. Some of you play very creepy people. You, for example, <laughs> <laughs> play some very creepy people. Like a living playing creepy people. <laughs> and you look so normal. I mean, yeah. <laughs> how, I where does this menacing is. quality I don't know what that's about. I mean, at some point, you, I, I think you get hired for what you've done in the past and what you've gotten known for in the past. And, and uh, hopefully you look for the things that, that break that mold a little bit along the way. I know, that, I know there are definitely times where I'm intrigued by things just because it's, it's different and it's not creepy man in a suit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, luckily there's enough variety in creepy man in a suit to keep, keep doing it. Both in television and Pillow yeah. Man, of course, I'm thinking of on stage. Where Pillow you Man, which is a part I, I almost didn't audition for oh. because mm -hmm. I felt so wrong for the role because I, I'd seen the play in, in London about a year before and it was one of the most incredible theater experiences I'd ever had as an audience member and then when it came time to uh, for the auditions here and I got asked to come in for the role that I eventually did I just thought I love this play but I couldn't begin to play this sort of menacing guy who in the London production was a much kind of beefier bigger guy and, mm -hmm. and that's to some extent what he brought to the production was just the physical menace and I just thought I'm not, nobody's gonna believe that I'm five seven and so I actually am five, six, and three quarters. But um, <laughs> I, I just didn't think I could believe that I could have any kind of physical threatening presence. Perhaps we should describe a little. You're, you're a, a I'd hardly the know, a guard, policeman, 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 and and one of them kind of yes, yes, <laughs> he's the torturer, and the other is the kind of the sort of the intellectual one of of, of the two. So he's definitely so the one who's killer. just ready to to pounce <laughs> at any moment. Um, and I just I couldn't suspend my disbelief there, but it, and, and it took me three days of, of going back and forth between I really love the play so much, and I really think I'm going to be faking it if I try to play this part, and that's not going to feel right, that I eventually decided not to make a decision and just go in and see what happens. Mm. Um, and then that whatever that menace was came out in a very different way from the way they, they manned it in, in, in London, but, but it, was, it was very intimidating um, to try to mm. fill that in, and, and uh, I didn't think I'd buy it, and that's usually my biggest criteria is, like, can I believe it? Sometimes it's flattering, people think, no, no, you can do this, and you're like, I'm not going to believe it coming out of my mouth, and I don't <laughs> I believed it, so I don't know. In fact, I thought you were an enormously dangerous person. Well, the odd thing was, because then I loved doing the production, and had an incredible time with, it, with the whole experience, and about three or four months ago, I saw a production of it in, in, uh, in Washington, and it was my first experience of the play since, since we'd done it about two years before. And I watched the play, and I all over again, like, I can never play that play. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how to say those lines. It, I went right back to zero, Whoa. suddenly convinced I would not know how to do that all over again. So. I think and it's Kevin. particularly difficult to, w when you're coming at roles like mm -hmm. that, where they're so detestable and so on, that you, your first job is to, to justify thinking through yeah. that filter. And nobody playing that kind of role wakes up saying, I'm going to be evil today. You mm -hmm. justify what you're doing, and it is for the greater good, your particular greater good, that you do them. And to find those reasons mm -hmm. 
make you go to dark places. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I mean, in that play, very specifically, was that. I mean, he had very specific reasons why he did what he did and how he thought he was protecting the world and That's protecting right. children. That's right. And then it gets twisted into this kind of yeah. anger, but, but you can trace it back. Yeah, and Jane, you were a really <laughs> scary mom. About the scariest night. <laughs> you had a malady. You were, I don't know, what well. was the matter with you? In, in well? well? In well. Oh, that's <laughs> so interesting <laughs> that you would call her scary because I think of her as a totally benign, loving, <laughs> adorable person. No. <laughs> there as you go. say. So misunderstood. <laughs> so misunderstood. And, well, that's and an interpretation. grossly misunderstood oh, I by see. her well, daughter I who was the center of the play. I know? thought you'd wandered in off the street somewhere because <laughs> it was one of the times I've never, uh, you didn't seem to be acting at all. Thank you. I had spent the lion's share of my life working in regional theater, and literally, virtually no one in New York knew me or knew my work. And we workshopped it uh, a fair amount at the public theater, and people really did think that Lisa's mother had just volunteered to <laughs> come in and, and uh, <laughs> be herself on stage while Lisa kind of worked this play out. And, um, and that illusion was something that we worked very hard to um, uh, nurture. So thank you for saying that it seemed very natural because that was the goal, of course. And um, and th just anecdotally, I mean, uh, to set that up when we were workshopping it, instead of having me come out with the rest of the actors, I suggested, I said, at, as the audience comes in, why don't I just be asleep in the chair? And so by the time the play starts, I'll just be this body that they've kind of come to take for granted this presence and and hopefully then I won't seem so actorish and um, so I did that you know repeatedly in readings and workshops and when we finally came into production they said why don't we just leave that and you go out Jane before half hour and when they open the house the audience will come in and you'll just be there asleep in the chair and um, <clears throat> Which was a fascinating exercise mm -hmm. to be there for half an hour and not fall asleep <laughs> while pretending to be asleep in a very comfortable lazy boy. But uh, one way that I would kind of keep myself alert was by listening to the audience. And one night there were two ladies in the front row and they were discussing me. And one of them was saying, well, I don't think that's real. I think it's a dummy. <laughs> <laughs> and the, her friend would say, no, I think it's a real person. She said, no, it's not moving. <laughs> she said, well, she's acting. She's pretending to be asleep. No, it's a dummy. Look at the legs. <laughs> at which point I thought, okay, <laughs> I'm going to play with them. And I twitched. <laughs> And they both screamed. Oh, no. <laughs> 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 it was fun. I bet. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about yeah. beginnings, uh, Elizabeth. Where did you first start to act? Or? At the American Academy, there are two people, uh, Pat and Fred Carmichael, who ran a summer theater in Dorset, Vermont. And they saw me uh, at the end do, do um, up our town, in fact, playing one of the mothers. Mm -hmm. And they invited me to be part of their season, which was uh, 16 weeks, weekly stock, you know. And uh, you started in May and you ended up in October. And you wow. do a play a week, you know, learning all those lines and 
Oh, and I played, and that's, that's where I, I, I began. I and that's started. where you think you learned most? I, I learned extraordinarily well. She was a director, uh, Pat, and he was a playwright and a director and an actor. And they, oh, I mean, I, I remember doing, um, what was it, uh, a Shaw piece, and she was so upset with me. She said, you're acting, I won't say it, she said, it's just, if you ever do that on my stage again, I, you, you are out. What did out. you do? Um, I, I guess I played, I was trying to play an ingenue, and I was trying to, you know, with the hair, and just <laughs> trying to play an ingenue. Oh. And, and it, I was not rooted in oh. any truth at all. Oh. It was Major Barbara. Oh. And, and so I, I had no truth, in, and she was right. And I, I think about her every night really? because of the feet being, you know, how important yeah. it is yeah. that you start from your feet up acting. Mm. Mm. You know, that you can't, you can't act from here. No, I don't know what space. you mean. What do you mean you start from your feet Well, up? you have to have the, you have to grip the earth with your feet. You're, 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 it's not light air on the stage, you know. Do you all do that, gripping your toes there? Well, you don't. It's, it's not really. It's <laughs> no, just, it's you, just you means that you are rooted. Grounded. But it's grounded. a very grounded. physical grounded. sensation. I was talking with a friend of yeah. mine who's talking about doing Hamlet soon, um, and I did it the Guthrie years ago, and, and I was talking to him about the first few previews where <clears throat> I never had this experience before of uh, the, the first entrance I had was, was to kind of break away from everybody upstage and tear down to the, to the front of the stage, which in a rehearsal room felt like I was leaving everybody to be solitary. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, the at the first preview, I was walking right into the laps of 1,200 people. Mm. And it was incredibly disturbing to suddenly mm. feel very self-conscious and very observed. Mm. And, and it went on for like several performances. I was incredibly self-conscious of everything I was about to say, everything I was about to do. And the only way I finally broke it, was on the, the, like the third or fourth night, was the sense, I can't say the next thing until I feel completely rooted we in this thing right now. Yeah. And it, it's that physical a, a sense of, of needing to feel absolutely grounded where you are before you can move on. And kind of threw the playoff for the night, but it broke the pattern. But it's, it's so concrete. I'm really curious yeah. almost about the dance thing. Dancing, yes. <coughs> the the awareness. Uh, you, you're of two minds. You're in your own uh, character's uh, space, but you're also aware of the storytelling to a group of people, and they are taking in not only what you're saying, but, y you know, when you watch debates, political debates, mm -hmm. <clears throat> you're taking in a lot more information than what people are saying, and you learn possibly more about them by the way they're standing, mm -hmm. yeah. by the way they're turning to someone else in their space or out of their space. Mm -hmm. All of that is as much a part of the dialogue mm -hmm. as any speech that you hear in, in the evening. Mm -hmm. So the space that you take up on stage and why you get to that space. Guthrie used to say, um, and it, it helps in, in what you just said, it's always m more interesting to say about a character, I, 
where did he just come from or where is he about to go? He just happens to land in this space at this time to say this particular thing because he has n nothing else he could possibly th do than to be here at this moment. He's just come from something and he's about to go to something else. But this is the space that's giving the information at this mm. moment. And you embody it with voice and you embody it with, with your presence too. So this is finding the character here. Let's talk mm. a little bit about how you go about finding the character. Well, to link this up to this subject of, of being grounded on stage or where, where your character's physical being is centered mm. might be a better way of putting it. <coughs> It was, I was playing V. Talbot in a production of Orpheus Descending, who is a, a person who is not grounded. In fact, she's really kind of out there psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. She's very, um, uh, she's a little crazy. And, Otherworldly. Let's uh, <laughs> yes. put it simply. But anyway, I was, I was kind of having a, a hard time finding that element of her, yeah. and I, I went to a costume fitting, and the designer said, uh, and I was in a dress, and she, she handed me a pair of shoes, and she said, I love the way these shoes look. She said, I'm afraid they won't fit. And I put them on, and they were two sizes too big for me. But something happened to me physically in those loose shoes of not knowing where exactly I was standing. Mm -hmm. And when I was walking, I had to hold on tight to keep them on my feet. And that, was, that took me to a different place physically and emotionally and psychologically. And I said, I love these shoes, let's use them. And I found who that person was literally from the feet up, mm -hmm. to yes. take it back to where you were talking about, yes. through this happy accident of a pair of shoes that didn't nice. fit. And it really became kind of the core um, physical aid right. in, in finding that character. A lot mm -hmm. of stuff came out of just a simple pair of shoes. It was interesting. Any other costumes that affected you when oh, you put yeah. them on? Yeah. Uh, Nun's Habit did uh, with Sister Mary. Oh, that Sister would, Mary did. Yes, <laughs> it really was. When it, you, it really well, what happened? You put the did nuns. Did you start early in rehearsal with it? Or no. It happened. No, it happened in the theater. Uh, yeah, in the theater. Um, on a dress rehearsal with it, with the whole uh, manner and, and my, my posture, oh. with my the tilting of the head, just, it just happened, yeah. and the smile happened, and all, all and it, it just leaned right into it. When I did London Assurance, um, uh, this is a woman uh, who's uh, far more comfortable with horses than with humans, and so. I, I love the delicious contradiction of being in a pink silk gown, but you, you probably think she's got the riding boots and has just come from the barn underneath the silk barn. So it informed how she walked, which was totally contradictory to the social setting that she happened mm. to be in at the time. So shoes, uh, walks, that sort of thing are all part of that physicality of, of any given character. And you? I think uniforms do that. Is it the only time I specifically remember mm. there's something just about putting on a uniform that changes your physical bearing. You suddenly have a responsibility <laughs> to that crisp mm. look. And it's on K-Mutiny, we used them uh, pretty early on. 
um, because you just you were rehearsing from your rehearsal sweater and you put a <coughs> uniform on and you can't slouch around anymore. You can't. So you were Lieutenant Commander Quig. Yeah. So you're another scary type. Scary, scary. self-justifying. Self-justifying. <laughs> deeply self-justifying <laughs> type. Type. When you talk deeply to actors, we all have our uh, justification. Justification for, for, uh, for everything we do. You can, <laughs> even, even though you can be incredibly judgmental, I mean that's that's uh, that's a character in, in many ways. I, I judge very harshly in terms of the play, mm -hmm. but in terms of of playing it and looking for somebody's vulnerability and their way of trying to hold on to their place in the world, that's very easy to relate to what it is that someone is protecting and what it is someone is holding in in order to present to the world who they want to mm -hmm. present to the world and how much work it takes to do that, how much effort mm -hmm. it takes mm -hmm. to keep that mm -hmm. in place. Mm -hmm. is separate from a judgment you may have about that person in the play as a whole or in the world. Do you try to convince yourself that you are that person? I don't know if it's about convincing yourself or, or, or hopefully that's where you, where you get to. Um, mm. There was a, in, with Quig there was a physical thing of, of uh, he has these steel balls that he uses to, to control the shaking of his hands and there are two separate scenes in the first scene, the first act, he's com in complete control until just a kind of flash at the end of it that he's been slightly thrown off so that you don't telegraph what's going to happen in the, in the second scene. But by the second scene, that physical thing kind of creeps in and he needs more and more to sort of control himself and the balls actually comes out to sort of try to keep a lid on. Um, and I just felt I had, in the end, very little control over the shaking that mm -hmm. on some level mm -hmm. that was happening in and of itself. In the first time, maybe I suggested it once very deliberately in a very specific place, just for a second, where I just reached into my pocket for a moment. But in the second act, at some point, when people would comment on it on the shake, and I'd be like, you have no idea how little control I have yeah. over that and when it's happening. And it's just, uh, I hope, the, the emotional You talked about that once. I, I read that you said you want the woman to come to you as an actress, you're not searching her out, but that, can you describe that process? It's, 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 a, it's a, a matter of asking her to use me to, to portray mm -hmm. her, you know, and, and whatever happens, happens, and I am not guiding that. Mm. I'm not controlling it. And that this kind of thing is happening now with the play I'm, I'm involved in. People say, oh, the poor actress has palsy. It's the piano. The piano teacher. Right. And it, it's not that. It's, it's the fear that she lives with. Mm. Her fear. Mm. And then when the, she's presented with the fear, when the man, the young man comes in, th there is no, I have no control mm. over the shaking. Mm. And, and, and the control of the, the hand just, just starts going. So you are inhabited by You hope to be. Yes. Yeah, that doesn't it always feels a lot yeah, better when you it think it's doing you and you're not doing it. It's sort of akin to, to music, yeah. too. Uh, if you learn a piece of music, you learn it by the numbers, and the music is over here and you're here. Mm -hmm. And with actors, it's the script that you all assemble and start working on. And I, I love this process because it's usually somewhere in the second week of rehearsal that you stop becoming individuals working on your part of it. You start feeling the vibrations of the interaction and you start becoming 
a breathing entity. You start becoming the script and the characters. And I love that moment when yeah. it's almost, you can almost feel it drop in, yeah. where mm -hmm. you leave your own particular world and you start moving and pushing against or pulling toward whatever the author's the trying to do yeah. with the story. And uh, this sounds a little different than the Stanislavski method, where you should be feeling your own personal emotions and crying for your own childhood and bringing your personal life in. You're describing another sort of well, a process. Well, you're part of an orchestra, really. You, you, of course, you have all that inner life, mm -hmm. but you're contributing to a larger story, which in turn feeds mm -hmm. back on your own character. And it, it's it's the it's it's your character's inner life, yeah. not, not this right. actor's inner life. That's 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 the the whole difference. Now, when you did Linda Lohman, uh, you know, uh, Death of a Salesman, uh, that was almost a uh, Greek <laughs> type performance, was it not? It's funny that you say that because I felt that I felt she was Greek-like. She would kill her sons if they hurt her husband. So you her love was so Greek-like that she would sacrifice her sons for the love of, of her husband. So when Bob Falls asked me, and we, we had a meeting about it, uh, I had done it uh, six years before in Cleveland with Hal Holbrook. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I felt that, and I said, I've always felt that Linda Lohman uh, was Greek-like. And he responded to that. I said, her love is so great for this man that she would sacrifice her mm -hmm. sons if they, if they harmed him. They harmed yeah, so. You've done a lot right. of Greek tragedies, yeah. haven't you? Do you play yeah. big? <laughs> I'm yeah, jealous. I I've uh, never done Greek. I'm too yeah, jealous of yeah. I, I just did uh, the Persians um, uh, last year at the Shakespeare Theater oh. in Washington, and that's an interesting thing because it's a formulaic in its presentation and the obstacle there is to keep a human voice and sensibility behind the formal language. If it's just presentational, the audience can disengage, but if you see on the surface a mask, but underneath you feel the hits that any particular character is taking, um, it's, it's a wonderful challenge to do. Mm -hmm. I had a, uh, an interesting experience when I had the dream job of my life. I was invited to the National Theatre to do uh, Barry Child, which is Sam Shepard. Now that's very Greek-like too. But uh, I, uh, they, they would all talk about Shakespeare, and I would say, I hate Shakespeare. <laughs> I just hate Shakespeare. I love the Greeks. And I still get emails asking me, were you telling the truth? <laughs> Did you really hate Shakespeare? So we're not allowed to say that, are no, we? No, and, and one of my lines in The Piano Teacher is, my husband was the one who made me love Shakespeare. Now, I read Shakespeare when I was younger, but oh, how dreadfully boring I found him. And, and then the director would say, you'd say that so honestly. I, said, I hate Shakespeare. <laughs> I'm not acting. <laughs> Can you describe the process of saying lines that are not about what they're about? Mm, mm. Oh, that's so interesting. Actually, in the case of The Receptionist, I think there are other plays where that dynamic happens and you would approach it differently. But in the case of the role that I'm playing in The Receptionist, she happens to be a person who is a champion 
of denial oh, of the reality <clears throat> of her circumstance and, and things that are going on in her life. And she chooses, she's very good at compartmentalizing in choosing what parts of reality she will take in and will be engaged in and will be enormously invested in and what parts of her reality she chooses to completely shut out. And as a person, she does that. And as an actor, I too must do that in order to play her. So actually, I don't have a conscious thing going on about sublimating something or repressing something. I don't repress anything until uh, the circumstances of the play take me to a point where I can no longer deny. And then mm. everything comes up to the surface in very alarming ways and, um, and in uh, the most terrifying ways, really. But I think the reason it's terrifying is because up until that point, there's no clue in the audience's mind as to what's really going on. It's the same, same, same theme same, there. Same woman. Same yes, woman. Same, same kind of woman who denies her whole life. Uh -huh. And she has made, and she goes to the end of the play saying, I'm looking at nothing, I'm thinking of nothing, and that's how I like it. And this is the story I tell. I was a piano teacher. I taught piano to children. And that, so even though she lives through horror, through the circumstances of the play, she starts mundane, she lives through the horror, and then she denies it at her last moments, mm -hmm. too. When I saw you as Mrs. Higgins in Pygmalion, I laughed so much. I've seen that story, you know, my fair lady, many times. I didn't know that part was as funny. <laughs> you managed to have found humor, so much humor in it. Well, I think um, a lot of people who come to Pygmalion think they know the play <laughs> yeah, because my fair lady is so embedded in our uh, culture, and and uh, that is not the play that Shaw wrote, and um, but uh, even at the time that it was. Uh, being done in his day, the audiences begged for a happy ending. And so there were liberties taken and, and suggestions and changes in a, a subsequent script that suggested perhaps she went with Freddie or perhaps they ended up together. And he was adamantly against a romantic conclusion to the play. And um, I think one of the challenges when I first came at it was to think what kind of parent would Henry Higgins have? And I wanted her to be someone uh, from whom uh, you could see, oh yes, that's her son and, um, and this is how he sort of got away with as much as he did. Also in the educational system then, children were sent off to boarding school and the parents and the children did not have the relationship that we accept as the norm today. They were, um, they were possibly not that close. So it was a more formal thing. And he, I think he was very much in, in our production, a product of the, the, the British public school education, mm -hmm. you know, where he, he's the individualist. But I, I love Mrs. Higgins. Will it rain, do you think? And I think that's the springboard from which Henry goes on and does his own thing. But uh, she's riding that fine line between the proper British lady and the exasperation of 
someone who just upsets her life every time he comes to visit and steals <laughs> cookies. <laughs> You've all had a, a long careers and worked in many fields. Do you still have to audition when you... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, sure. You know, they still make you I do it. I just work. came from one. Did you really? <laughs> no. <laughs> I sort of reached a point with television things where, where a lot of guest shots in television I, I do come up as an offer, but everything else is auditioning and is just as excruciating as it ever was. And I was trying to figure out my percentage is really bad. <laughs> really? Well, well, the percentage of jobs I get off of has got to be 5% yeah, or something out of 100 auditions. It's unlike if anything that jobs. we do in our work. Oh. It's not like, it's, it's, not, it's a process that is totally fake because it takes us a while to act with each other, yeah. to learn our characters with each other. The process you have of to sitting in an process. office and pretending that you are on a wall somewhere screaming <laughs> into the wind or whatever it is you're meant to be doing yeah. while you're sitting in an office chair with somebody three feet away with a camera in your face. Uh, it's, my, it's my suspension of disbelief. I know. <laughs> it's just, I know. No. Yeah, it's it's just not a party <laughs> trick. And <laughs> I, it feels like in that yeah. circumstance that that's what's expected of you. It's like... Yeah. Go from zero to 60 like that. Yeah. It's very difficult. M maybe more so film okay. and television, because I think I actually have an audition for a play in a long time, so maybe that's still a different well, because experience. Because you do because Oz there's so and much more Homicide and yours. It's been working. more. The theater things have, have just been fewer and kind of further between uh, lately, and, and uh, Kate Mutiny was, was an offer of a Pillman movie. It was the last one that I seriously read for. And, then, and somehow that's a little different because you've got two or three, four or five pages of. Rich, dense material in some sense of having a story, as opposed to here's a page and a half, mm -hmm. and you have every fourth line. Right. It's very difficult to kind of believe in that and invest in that, and, and really feel you're bringing something to it that's essentially functional. You particularly had a career outside New York, traveling and traveling all around the country. You're like the itinerant. <laughs> totally. Totally. Performer. I was completely itinerant for about 25 years. How could you have a life, as they say? Um, that was well, your life. that was my life. That was your life. <laughs> that was my life, and it was a very rich life. And uh, one of the reasons that I kind of found that as my niche, I think, was because I've always valued being able to play the broadest range of things possible, uh, not only in terms of roles, but also in terms of kinds of plays. And um, the regional theater provided this really rich playing field for me to do everything from uh, the ancient classics to modern classics to, you know, farce to deep tragedy and, and everything in between, and musicals and straight plays, etc. So, you know, it provided a really rich life and career for me for many, many years. And then I burned out on it. Mm -hmm. And I, I became very road-weary and very tired of being transient and living mm -hmm. out of a suitcase. Mm -hmm. And I made the decision at that point to <clears throat> say no to out-of-town work and start working in New York. And um, that was a difficult transition for a couple of years because no one in New York knew me. Mm -hmm. uh, casting directors didn't know me. Directors who worked mostly in the city didn't. Producers certainly didn't. And so I, I um, went through a couple of very lean years just... And it was actually, I, for about 15 years I hadn't auditioned. I, I would, people were just calling me with jobs. Mm -hmm. So I had to kind of learn how to audition on my feet and you know, all of that, but then slowly but surely I started getting 
re workshops and readings in the city and working on new plays, which was terribly interesting and exciting for me because I'd never known what it was to originate a role. I'd been doing the tried and true all those years. So it's been, a, it feels like a whole new career for me hmm. over the last five or six years. In the early years, I spent um, my first years at the Guthrie, and again, it was repertory. Mm -hmm. And all the directors came there, and all the plays changed, and you did uh, three and sometimes four in rotation mm -hmm. in those days. So um, your interest was constantly mm -hmm. uh, challenged and 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 you got to work on different things in the course of a week's time. I think of you as being uh, always working. Uh, I regional theater so kept you me alive until I was at Yale mm -hmm. at their repertory, and that's where I met uh, Chris Durang. And he, they asked me to do one of his plays, and I didn't understand his play. And I said, oh, I'm not going to be any good in it. And I said, no. And then he asked me to come and read for Sister Mary. And I said, now this character I understand, which terrified him. Because <laughs> <laughs> they had me back three times to make sure I wasn't as crazy. <laughs> as as but but that's, what, that's what brought me into New York. Uh -huh. But I still go to the regions to do like Long Day's Journey with Sam Waterston and you know the things like that, the, 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 the big ones that you won't be done here. You had your own personal odyssey from Yugoslavia, or Slovenia, I guess it Slovenia is exactly was what Slovenia. was Yugoslavia. At, at first it was just some sense of acting out and you know performing in front of people, whatever that meant. And the first theater that I was really exposed to is when we, for the second time, moved to California, was to San Francisco, and, and it was the second year that ACT had just moved there from Pittsburgh, wherever they were before. Mm. Um, and my parents got a subscription for me, apparently. I don't know how I expressed an interest, but they said it was years later. They told me it was because of me. And, you know, every two, three months, you saw another play, and it was mostly classics and a lot of Miller and Chekhov and, and uh, Kaufman and all that. So it was a very kind of wide range. And I thought that's what I would do for the rest of my life. That became in my head. That's what acting is. You do this range of plays and all these classic plays. And that's how you make a life in the theater. And I've barely done any of that <laughs> since then. But it turned into a completely other experience than, than or other road than I thought I was heading out on. Mm. And, I, and I now can't conceive of anything else because the number of productions would have either done the first production of or the first American production of British plays. Um, it's just been incredibly satisfying to be, you know, talk about creating a character the first time out yeah. and have a playwright there, what that means, yeah. that there's a writer in the room mm -hmm. and something you do actually may affect the life of this play. Yeah. I went up to Exeter a couple of week, uh, weeks ago, a friend of my teacher's up there and I'd been reading Master Harold and the Boys and she asked me to come up because I did the first you production the first of that. Production. And I was telling the story of something that happened in a rehearsal that is the only change in the play that happened wow. during, during the rehearsal process because of a kind of incredibly challenging moment from the director who was the playwright and it was a very autobiographical play. He kind of asked me to kind of go much further with a particular moment and, and the whole circumstances of it were so difficult it was completely baffling to me. And all I could figure out was that somehow it all had to do with, with in the play and in the situation we were in with alcohol. And I wound up taking out my frustration on this bottle of whiskey that the character's father had asked him to bring home and 
breaking it, which I had no intention of doing, except the glass, glass shattered all over the room. And eventually stage direction changed so that this bottle was now broken in the play. And it's pretty much my highest achievement <laughs> in the theater is that one sentence stage direction that something that happened in a rehearsal room is you, now you permanently in that play. It's in theater lore. It's, it's yeah. the most lasting. It's I wouldn't say highest necessarily, <laughs> but it's a lasting it's achievement. Really up there for me because the, the sense of being a collaborator in a process mm. and, the, and, and of, of being part of something communal out of which come, I mean, you are sort of there to serve a play and you're there to serve a writer. I have no illusions about that, but the extent to which something you bring to the table can then affect the work as a whole is just incredibly satisfying. Do the playwrights give notes the way directors do? Some. Depends some do. on the playwright, I think. Some will do it through yeah. the director, some will. So you get notes. Directly. How do you like getting notes from the director? Is it helpful or? From the playwright? From the playwright. Depends or the director. on the playwright. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, did you ever get a note you liked? <laughs> uh, well, I, I mean, for instance, on Well, uh, Lisa Crone, who was the playwright and also playing herself in the central role in the play, uh, is a very collaborative writer yeah. and worker and actor. And uh, that was an extraordinary experience, actually, the triangulation that happened between director, playwright, and actor. <clears throat> and having been in development with that play for over four years, mm -hmm. the, the bonds that developed were incredible in terms of trust. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Lisa, as a playwright, was so welcoming to input uh, from myself as an actor. Uh, I got very spoiled that way. And, uh, but it, was, it paid off. I mean, that's just how she is effective as a writer, is by working collaboratively with people. That's her way. Um, but I, I've had other experiences where it's not necessarily as helpful to hear from the playwright as it is to hear it through the director, maybe. Or from the other actors. I know they don't give notes, but how important is the other, the co-actor with you? You I don't want to hear notes no. from the other actor. You don't want to hear notes from the other But you, can they help you, you to be more creative, for example? Oh, yes, yeah. yes, yes, very much Well, so. you two work together, so yeah. we well, you help each other. Well, I was just thinking about describing that on, on, on with Neil Simon. Part of you walk into a room and Neil Simon is sitting <laughs> <laughs> at the table. I mean, there's a certain thing you just have to get over <laughs> that he's not doing anything, he's just sitting no, there, but you can't get past who we he is. We had an, an actress that had to, was replaced in yeah. Brighton Beach because she could not get over Neil's presence. And uh, I suggested, and I was nobody at the time, that maybe if, as Kate, I might like to wipe the table of the dishes to know what my frustration inside is. Mm. And if I did, I said, Neil, I'm afraid you probably would fire me, you know, if, if I did something outrageous like that. And I said, so that, that is the kind of, of it's kind of the, the, the lid that your presence is putting on us. It's, they had taken me to lunch. I thought I was going to be fired. And they were talking about. <laughs> two people were fired. Like two people were fired. Just oh, they waiting, were, they were waiting fired. to find out who's next. Yes, I know. So, oh. so, but they they were trying to say what what, what could be helpful. I mean, because mm -hmm. I was with this other person uh, with her lines every night, and I knew she knew her lines. Mm -hmm. I was at her house. So it was just, but his, just presence. his presence. Yeah. So Formidable. he went away. Yeah, yeah he uh, went away. Have for you five had that experience? Yeah, and it, 
was with Neil actually, oh. but not a new play. Um, we were reprising, uh, it, it, we called it Hotel Suites, and it was Plaza yeah. Suite, oh, California yeah. Suite, and London Suite mm. that we did as an evening thing. And he came in and updated a great deal of the language. And what I so appreciated, it, the same thing though, the first time you spend the first day going, oh my it's like God. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, there is a line that Di Diana says uh, in the original script where she's drunk and she's come back and she hasn't won the, the, the Oscar and she's drunk. And she, in the original script, it's Sydney and look exactly like a steel belted radial tire. And he said, That's a bit dated. So he said, Let me think about it. And he came back the next day. He said, Try this. And the line was, Sydney, I look exactly like I'm going to look. <laughs> <laughs> I said, that's brilliant. That night he came back, he said, I want to add one more thing. I said, why? He said, but it, it, the audience needs one more beat to let the, the, jo so the right. joke so drop in. And this is a, an example of watching his craft. Mm -hmm. And I said, are you sure it's so clean, it's so short, it's so wonderful? He said, no, no try it, the audience really needs it. So it was exactly the same line with an addition. And it ended up being, Sydney, I look exactly like I'm going to look one day. Oh, that's <laughs> cute. No, no, there, there. And he's just got an ear. Yeah. He, he, he doesn't watch, he listens. Mm -hmm. well, have yeah. you ever worked with a director that you had to work with, but his notes were lousy, and you said, I don't want to do these things? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> name That's the names? edited portion of this evening. <laughs> <laughs> we want to know who are these people. No, without saying their names. I mean, so describe a situation where you, ha well, how do you handle that? You get some note and you say, I, I can't, I don't want to do this and I can't do it. I've always, what have you done? I've always felt, just philosophically, that my job is if I receive a note that either flies in the face of what I'm thinking or whatever, or I don't exactly understand or, uh, that my job as an actor is to figure out a way to incorporate uh, and find some truth in what the note is for me that I can incorporate and also at the same time not necessarily <laughs> <laughs> compromise you know whatever what I know to be true about the moment or the character now sometimes that's absolutely not possible but often I find that if I just wrench myself open enough to let in what it is that I feel resistant to, I'll, I'll find something in it and something of value if I can find a way to incorporate it into what I'm already believing and thinking about. And oftentimes, too, the director, if he's a really good director, will say, that was a really lousy note. Oh, let, really? Let's, let's, let's pull back from that. Let's no. just, just go with your instinct or something. Yes. And then off, often they would do it, but, but you have to try it. You try it and you try it and you try it, and then if he's really, if they're really good, uh, they, they will say, you know, that's bad. It's yeah, just getting okay. into the way of the flow. And sometimes it's also good about establishing a, a, a trust as well, that if you are asked to do something, even if you think it's very wrong, mm -hmm. they're just in the working process yeah. You have to give a benefit of a doubt Be in order to, to receive try. a benefit yeah. of a doubt. Yeah. And that's what goes with playwrights as well, that there's, yeah. you will get listened to by a writer if you establish some level of, of trust in terms of the commitment you're giving and the thoughtfulness you're giving, yes. not just to your role, but yes. to what's going on as a whole. Yes. 
and sometimes you can need to give something in over, over so that you have some credibility yeah. when you say, but I still think that's wrong. That's right. Or I still want to try something else. Yeah. yeah. Right. Willingness really helps. What do you all do when you go to the theater in order to erase the world and to step into a new character? Do you have something that you do or I, a I ritual? My my ritual really is just showing up plenty early. <laughs> okay, mm -hmm. you I really, early. early. Yeah, well, I between an hour and a half to two hours before. Wow. Yeah. And I, it has to do with being inside the building and saying hello to everybody, crew and company alike, and um, sitting in front of the mirror for a significant amount of time so that I'm re I know that I'm really here and I've left the day behind and all sorts of mm -hmm. anything that might be distracting. It just takes me time to get there, and so I make sure that I allow myself that. I, I don't I mean, I show up early enough to be able to have some kind of just social time with everybody and just the showing up and, and somehow that part of just leaving the rest of the world and being in this world. And the only thing I, st this partly became superstition. I, I don't know what it is anymore, but at some point, I think it was the first time maybe I had some big chunk of a monologue, is that I will go on stage and run that very, very, very quickly on stage mm -hmm. and then just take a moment centers. I, I love empty theaters. There's something about an empty mm, theater. Yes, that, that's kind of my church yes, and, and the yes. sensation of standing center stage to an empty house and taking that in. And I just take a moment to take that in. I'm, I'm a two-hour person, too, <laughs> and I, I go on the stage, but I, 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 I like saying hello to everybody and all, all of that. I'm backstage, though, uh, about half hour, at ha half hour, just sitting in mm -hmm. a chair, mm -hmm. but, and trying to get my nerves. I'm, I'm, I'm somebody who never loses her nerves mm -hmm. until the first line, and then the character takes over. But sitting back there as me, and not knowing, as you say, what's going to happen when you, you go out. I mean, in any amount of things could happen. And you have to just try to trust that, no, you know this securely and you'll you meditate. I do. And I love to put on uh, appropriate music. And mm -hmm. it's like uh, you have this enormous house that's you, and you're able to close all the other doors and just go to that one room that is appropriate, that, that mood, that feeling, that energy um, that allows you to be in that particular space that night. But like you, uh, all I hope for every night is to be empty enough of myself mm -hmm. and the daily whatever to let go of all that and let the play fill you up. Because, you know, some nights you think, well, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. You're too much in the way of the play to, to get it. But if you're sufficiently empty, mm -hmm. um, and by that I mean um, uh, gutsy enough to just show up and, mm -hmm. and let the play fill you up and not know what it's going to do, um, that's, those are the best nights usually. Not are you frightened? Depends on the role. I, d I don't think frightened, no. I'm apprehensive and I'm energetic and I, I want it to start. Um, but this, you know, it, if you're carrying a lot of responsibility, you, you're apprehensive and you're keyed. But um, I, 
long ago, I remember being very, very nervous uh, as a student, and, and my mother came to see the performance, and she was there in the afternoon, and she tried tea, and she tried distraction, and I was still going on. She said, you know, Helen, nobody's coming to watch you be nervous. <laughs> you know, that's really good advice. They're coming to see mm -hmm. a story, to be told a story, and it's not about the actor, it's about mm -hmm. the character. So I, I think of that often. Any stage fright over here? In previews. In previews. In previews. The first sensation of you know, walking in front of an audience and are you grounded enough and do you know what you're doing well enough and, and what's going to come at you. And, but I usually, for the most part, phase. And there's still a certain level of apprehension just because you know things can go wrong and that's <laughs> a scary <laughs> moment. I remember actually going up in Brighton Beach four months into the run completely blank in the middle of a story oh. and being spooked for about two weeks mm -hmm. and that's the that's the part in previews that you're just do I am I ground enough do I know mm. this well enough that something can come flying at me out of the blue and I'll still be able to stay on track mm. you don't know what can throw what you off. What is that when you suddenly forget something is it that you're not concentrating hard enough or what is it what is I, this I happens I don't know what it is, what is it? the trickiest thing is that it's you, you don't forget know. the words you forget what you're talking about I you know forget it's like the neurons stop firing beyond oh. blank yeah I didn't know the subject matter I wasn't forgetting what the sentence was <laughs> I didn't know what I was talking about oh <laughs> and I was this close to having to say excuse me ladies and gentlemen I have to start the scene again when like a word came out, but that was about a good minute and a half yeah. of me Oof. fluffing and I wonder doing. what that is in the brain that does that. Have you had that happen? I it have had it happen. It's, it's, it's really terrifying. I don't, I don't know what it is. It really feels almost neurological. It's like the, the brain just says, okay, for, I just have to shut down here because we've done this so many times. But it's, it's terrifying when it happens. On the other hand, though, I do find that when I'm beginning the run of a play, I'm very nervous. But once I have, I weather some sort of disaster, something mm. going wrong, mm -hmm. or being on stage when something happens for someone else, and you, you weather that, it's like then I realize, oh, okay, I, can, I remember that I can trust myself mm. to... You know, take care of things when things go wrong, and that's mm -hmm. part of the experience of being in live theater. Is to is that spontaneous thing that anything can happen, and that's kind of a wonderful thing. There are two <laughs> kinds of going up. Yes. One is you can't remember a word or a particular phrase, but you're still cognizant yeah. of the argument, and and you can quickly substitute something, and you keep going. And as you say, the other kind is you don't know whether it's Tuesday or February. And you're just gone. And it's, it's, it's freezing. It's, it, you just can't see, you can't hear, and you just don't know where you are, and you just have to stop. It's, and hopefully you have wonderful people on stage with you to help you oh, out. Yes. <laughs> and you cross your eyes or, or something and let them know. At you like, I've stopped listening to you <laughs> well, two months into this run. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know how to help you, but I feel sympathetic. Yes. I remember the My other actor like hugging out. me. We were hugging at one point. You like, yes. But you like hugging, but give me a line. What's the line? Give me something. Can you whisper? I appreciate your sympathy, but really a little help. How many syllables? <laughs> oh I, that's my God. with piano teacher because it's only me for the first eighteen pages. 
and talking to the audience. And I must say that during the preview, it was just, it was just thinking mm. of words, 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 not making sense, just trying to jump off the cliff and try to do it. But mm. it, it's, it's, it's terrifying. And then all of a sudden, you start owning it, and you start being able to play with it, and it gets comfortable. But it's terrifying, I mean when there are no other actors yeah. to help you. Yeah. Oh, that's incredibly all. lonely. It I wonder that I watched by their monologue and, and that sense of you're going out there and whatever is going to come fresh is going to come from you. <laughs> is, I don't know how you do it for, for very long. Yeah. It's a weird sense. So David Hare was telling me one time about he, uh, Judy Dench came to, he did a one-man show, and Judy Dench came to see him. They were talking about that and doing a one-man show, and he said, have you ever done it? And she said, oh, no, 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 no. When I walk down onto that stage, I have to believe I'm meeting someone. There's such a comfort that there's, yeah. there's somebody, there's somebody there. Maybe she there. knows the lines. <laughs> and even if it's not in you right now, it'll yeah. come to you if you just feed <laughs> off what the other person is doing. But the sense that it's just you yeah. is very scary. Well, it's been wonderful to talk to all of you. I've enjoyed it. I hope none of you Thank go up you. on your lines or having this frozen moment. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I have enjoyed so much talking with you. These programs are brought to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York in partnership with our friends at CUNY TV. On behalf of the American Theatre Wing, I'm Pia Lindstrom, and thank you for joining us for another edition of Working in the Theatre. The American Theatre Wing has played a vital role in New York's theatrical life for more than 60 years. We stand for excellence and we support education in the theater. Best known for creating the Tony Award, our work reaches beyond Broadway and New York. These seminar programs, which are supported by the Annenberg Foundation and the Dorothy Strelson Foundation, are an unequaled forum for discussions with today's most creative artists. Downstage Center's in-depth interviews are heard on XM Satellite Radio. Our grant and scholarship programs support New York theater companies and theater students. And since we began, we have given away more than two and a half million dollars. Our theater intern group helps young people who are just starting in their careers build a professional network. And Springboard NYC is a two-week boot camp for aspiring actors from colleges across the country. All of the American Theatre Wing's educational and media programs are available for free, on demand, from our website, americantheaterwing.org.